Thank you for joining us for the Preaching at Trinity podcast. We hope you enjoy this six-part sermon series on the priority of worship. Here is our senior pastor at Trinity Baptist Church, Dr. Daniel Minton. We're going to look at a couple promises from God today. As we talk about the fact that God is unchanging, and that is, uh, should be a great comfort to us, but that, that should also mean that our worship does, does not change. Now, please understand me when I say this. I'm going to uh, use a, dis- I hate starting with disclaimers, but I feel like sometimes you have to. Uh, I'm not saying that, that the, the, uh, some of the mode of worship never changes, but I'm saying the fact that we worship a God, as we talked about last week, we worship him in spirit and in truth. If God never changes, then the truth never changes. And so the truth that we're worshiping or the, the actual components that we're, we're worshiping of God, the truth never changes, then neither should, uh, should we in our style um, adjust the truth. It's because proper worship is founded in knowing and loving the true God, the creator. And so worship is, is not based on practices. It's not based in rituals. It's not based in external actions. It's based on knowing and reverencing the one true Lord. And because he does not change, the knowledge of him and the reverence that we give to him should not change. As if, you, if you look at the outline, you can see there's a lot of scripture, and I have some I don't even include in there. And that's a, actually a reassuring thing to me as I was preparing to preach. I am going to inundate you, overwhelm you probably with scripture. You will not be able to turn quick enough. And, and, and it's not because I, I don't want you. I want you to listen, but I also want you to understand the plethora in which scripture speaks about our unchanging God and how comforting that is to us. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of lambs. And so his whole point, Samuel's whole point is, it doesn't matter the, the mode even in which you're worshiping, Right? Uh, And that's given in the context of King Saul offering sacrifices to God, which he was not supposed to do. And so Saul says, but I obeyed. I gave God the sacrifice he wanted. And, And Samuel's point is, yeah, you may have done the right ritual, and you gave exactly what God gave, but you were presumptuous in your giving. You didn't worship him with your heart. You went through the right ritual or the right mode, but you didn't do it in truth. And so your sacrifice, not only was it useless, his sacrifice was actually an abomination to God because Samuel thought he could worship God in his own way. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I desire, this is God speaking, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now think about that. We, and and this is going to be a common theme, we put God into box. The Old Testament box and the New Testament box. In the Old Testament, God behaved a certain way. He was a God of wrath and vengeance and anger and, and law, 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 law. And God in the New Testament is a God of love and tenderness and mercy, right? The God in the New Testament is the, the eyes of Jesus, 
And that's what we think sometimes. And yet here in the Old Testament, Hosea 6, 6 says, I desire mercy and not burnt, not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So that gets to the very heart of worship, straight from the Old Testament. God desires our heart in worship. It's not about the external practices. It's not about the rituals. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. And knowledge of the true God provides us with the basis in which worship can begin. As we saw last week, worship must be in spirit and in truth. And if we're going to worship in truth, then we must know the one true God. All worship that is devoid of the truth or distorted truth concerning God it is false worship. So worship necessitates knowing and understanding God. And we're told that in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so we're going to talk about, we could look at a lot of attributes of God, but we're going to talk about the fact that God is unchanging. Because if God is unchanging, then what God has said about himself in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. And what God has said about the Old Testament about himself is still just as relevant today as it was 4,000, 5,000 years ago when, when, when these things were being recorded. And so God does not change. That's what immutability really is. The definition is always the same, unchanging, not subject to change. God is unchanging. He cannot change. Would you go with me to Psalm 102? There's a couple times I'm going to have you turn with me in Scripture. Just because I want you to see the basis in which we begin and then the basis in which we end. If you'd like to turn to these others, please, you're welcome to, but I am going to read them quickly. So uh, they're written down, so you can turn if you'd like, but you can also just write them down yourself and go back later. As a pastor, I always love it when, people, when I hear that people went back later and continued to study Scripture. Psalm 102, verse 25, says, Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Malachi 3, 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Now listen, there's a promise in there as well. God does not change, that's a fact. The promise is because God does not change, you aren't being destroyed. Now we could sit here and say, Oh, I love the, immu- uh, you know, the immutability of God is really important. And we can emphasize the fact that God does not change, therefore he is always righteous. And he always is just. And he's always wrathful. But notice what this verse emphasizes. Therefore you are not consumed. That means he is always a God of mercy. And always a God of love. And so God does not change. That's the reason you're sitting here today. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift come down, cometh down from above, from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God does not change. 
It's interesting, two of the three verses that I just mentioned are in the positive. This is a positive thing. The fact that God does not change. We live in a fickle world. Everything is constantly changing. Society is changing. We're renaming what is a sin and what is not a sin. And yet God is always the same, consistent. He's eternally immutable. No part or attribute of God will ever change. And so his power is constant. His wisdom is complete. His holiness is unwavering. His mercy is everlasting. No perfection of God, no attribute of God will ever be altered. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if it was ever changed, even in the most minute way, then God would cease to be God. His immutability, the fact that he does not change, is what makes him superior far above all creation. He is always consistently the same. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously yes. If he says he's going to do it, he will do it. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And so God is always the same. And what this means then is that God's plans do not change. And, and I'm going to change the word plans in a sense to God's promises do not change either. Everything that God has determined, everything that he has foreordained or pre-willed will be, will be accomplished exactly to the details that he has determined. Because his will is always the same. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart are to all generations. Now, that's a wonderful truth. That means that the promises that God makes to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob are, are the promises for all the generations that he's made to Israel. The promises that he's made to the church age, uh, to the people who are, are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, just to be clear, is the same way the people in the Old Testament were redeemed. Those promises are always the same to every generation. It, it's not like Paul gets extra salvation. You get all the promises of salvation that Paul got. Proverbs 19, 21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Hebrews 6, 17, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And we know that God swore by himself because he could swear by nothing greater. Which means he will accomplish everything that he has determined, everything that he has promised. His purposes, by the way, never change. And this is really important to us because our pur your purposes change all the time. My purposes change all the time. I have a good idea. I, at night, I get lots of really good ideas. I don't know if you do this, but I'll lie in bed, and I, lie, I have trouble sleeping. So I will lie in bed for half hour, an hour, two hours every night trying to fall asleep. And there's this state between when I'm conscious and when I'm not quite asleep where I have brilliant ideas. Okay, you're nodding your head. You have them too. And then I wake up in the morning, and I think about that idea, and I think, I am a nincompoop. That's a horrible idea. Do you do that? Yeah, you, you do. Nobody's shaking their head now. You were all shaking your head a minute ago. 
Because you do this. You have these, what you think are brilliant plans and ideas. God is not like that. When he has an idea, or, look, that's false. God doesn't have ideas. Everything he thinks is true. Everything he knows is true. He doesn't have new ideas. We, ah, it's so hard to wrap our brain around the concept of how immense, how immeasurable, how immutable God is. Everything he thinks is always only true. So he doesn't come up with new plans. That was my point. You come up with new plans. Sometimes they're horrible. Me too. But not God. Everything that he has ever determined has been perfect. That is really hard to accept. In fact, that requires faith on our part to accept. Because by accepting that fact, that that everything that God has ever planned or thought is perfect, requires us to then compare ourselves to God and we fall miserably short. And in our pride, we don't want to fall short. We want to think that our plans are always good. But they're not. And so we must accept what God says about himself in faith, knowing as we read scripture that we find out it's absolutely certain and true. And so God's plans do not change. Isaiah 14, verse 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. And so God will accomplish everything that he says he will do. And in doing that, he will have full glory, complete victory. And he'll do it as he brings about the promises that he's made to mankind. Now listen, God is not a far-off God who does not care about his creation. And that's what we're going to study next. God is absolutely immutable. He does not change. Everything he's written in this word has been written for you and I to understand more fully who he is and to to take great comfort in the fact that he does not change. And so he wants you to understand that he is never changing, immutable. That he is always, for eternity, the same. Because the ramifications of that are very important, especially when it comes to worship. And so let's talk about the importance of an unchanging God. And I really only have two points uh, with some sub-points under it. And the first is the danger of changing the unchangeable. The fact that God does not change should cause us pause and we should examine our life to make sure, wait, where am I tempted to change the unchangeable God? In my mind, how am I tempted to conform God to my thinking rather than to conform my thinking to an unchanging God? There's a danger here of confusing immutability with immobility. The fact that God, we'll say God cannot change, which is true, but then to say that God therefore cannot act is not true. God is not bound by the parameters of mankind. He is not immobile. It's not that God cannot work because of who he is in his perfections or his attributes. it's, It's not saying that God cannot act. He can absolutely do all things according to his will. And so he's not limited in action because he is changeless. Rather, he will always be consistent or constant in his actions. 
He will always only be holy and righteous. He will always only be just and merciful. He will always only be a God of consistent wrath and constant love. And those seem contrary to us. It's very hard to wrap our, well, we can't. Because in mankind, we see these attributes as being opposing. To be just, giving people what they deserve, and merciful, giving people what they don't deserve. They seem at odds with one another. And yet God is always only those things. Perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And because these things seem to be opposing to us, we think that God then is, is unable to act at times because of his justice or because of his mercy. And that just goes to prove what we're going to look at in a second, the transcendence of God, that God is far above us and his ways are far above our ways. And we can't hem God into a box and put him into something that is tangible and easy for us to comprehend and understand. Because if we could fully understand and put God in this box and limit him to, to our understanding, he would cease to be God then. He is so far above our ways. And so we, ha we have to be careful that we do not confuse immutability, the fact that God never changes, with immobility, the, the, the thinking that he cannot act sometimes because of his character. He is always consistent and constant in his actions. The other danger is making our own God. And I've already alluded to this, making our own God, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, an Old Testament God of law, that God enacts all these laws to, to hem people in so that they follow the right rituals and the right practices, and therefore they become pleasing to God. How do you please God? You keep the law. And there's whole religions based off that. And then there's this God of the New Testament who's done away with the law. He conquered the law, and so you don't have to do everything that God says because you live in the age of grace, and God will give you his mercy and his love. And both of them are false. Both of them are false. For the, for the one, the belief in the rituals lends us to believe that God doesn't care about our heart. As long as we do the right things, God will be pleased and therefore we can earn, we would not say this, but that's what it lends to, we would earn God's favor. So we've just created our own God. In fact, it would be a God very closely associated with Judaism, Islam, Catholicism. It's a works-based religion. That I earn God's favor by keeping the law. And that's the God of the Old Testament. And then we have the God of the New Testament. Some people would believe that he's a God of love and a God of mercy. So he doesn't care. Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. But that's why, that's why he sent his son. Because he loves us. And he, he, just, he just requires that we, you know, we, we, we love him back. And God will just give us favor. And so you can do whatever you want. And there's whole sections of Christianity that teach this. You just do whichever. We live in the age of grace. It's all it's on the grace of God. So we re, we recategorize sin, and ignore what God thinks about sin, 
And in doing that, we, we create our own God. Both of these are ditches. When we study scripture, we find that the God of the Old Testament is absolutely a loving and a merciful God. In fact, you want to you know about the long-sufferingness of God? Read the Old Testament, who generation after generation is patient with mankind, drawing them to himself. He's so patient with an entire nation because he promised he would accomplish redemption through that nation. And so because of the promise of God and because of the long-suffering of God, the patience of God, he waits for them and he pulls them and draws them back to himself time and time again. You want to learn about a merciful, long-suffering, patient, loving God? Read the Old Testament. And at the same time, you want to learn about a God who, who is just and wrathful? Might I remind you there's a book called Revelation, How the Bible Ends? in which God spends chapter after chapter, I believe it's 22 chapters, describing his wrath that he will pour out on a world who has abandoned him in the, in the realm, or in the, uh, the claim of love. All is love. And the world abandons him, and he pours his wrath upon them. God has never changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We just change what we want God to look like. Mankind changes who they got, want God to be. People are tempted to treat God differently according to how they feel, according to the culture, according to the religious practices. And yet God cannot change, and this is terribly dangerous. You know what the only difference between the Old and the New Testament is? The Old Testament has a lot of promises about salvation that are made, and the New Testament they're fulfilled. That's it. Promises made in the old and promises kept in the new. It's all about mankind's perspective that's warped that, looking, looking forward or looking back to the promises of God. By the way, not all the promises of God are complete yet either. And so God has not changed. God still hates sin. And there's no recategorization of sin that, that is acceptable to God because God is always holy and he always hates sin. He must be separate from sin. So let's get to the good part. I don't want you to be discouraged. It's already a cloudy day and I already feel like people are a little lethargic. Can I tell you, there is incredible comfort in this, the fact that God does not change. And so I want to give you five ways that God's immutability comforts us. The first is that God, in his character, can be relied upon. That means, of all the things in this world that I can trust, God is number one, there is no second. Everything else, there is no second. Who, can you trust yourself? No. And you know that better than anyone. Can you trust other people? We'd be even quicker to say no. We can't trust anything in this world. There is one thing we can trust. God. He is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And what an incredible comfort that is. This world is so inconsistent. 
This world is anything but constant. It is changing. It is fickle. It is disastrous. It is deteriorating. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that. Everything in this world is deteriorating and falling apart. Except there's one thing that's always the same. God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6. One God and Father of all. Listen to this. Who is above all and through all and in you all. God is transcendent. He is far above creation. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor or to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God is always the same, and every, every molecule on this earth and outside of this earth has been put together by God. Not only is he far above creation, he is also intricately involved in creation. God is imminent. That's what imminent means, to be intricately involved in creation. Job chapter 12 verse 10 says, In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now think about that. Not only did God create everything and his ways are higher than his ways and his knowledge is far above everything that he ever created, but on top of that, he is sustaining every breath of every living thing. Go ahead, take a breath right now. That was a gift of God. And the next one, that was him too. And the next 10,000 that you take are because of God. He is in absolute control of all things. And he's involved in every part of creation. Acts 17, 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God doesn't need you. You don't want to worship him? That's fine. He doesn't need your worship. You need him. In every part of your life. Now again, this is a really hard truth to accept. All right? I understand you've all been in church since you were, before you were born. Right? You all went to Sunday school. Not everyone, I know. You've been in Sunday school for decades, right? You know these things to be true. But imagine the truth that is wrapped up in, in this verse the fact that we need God this desperately, that he is involved in every single component, that is hard to accept, and we must accept it by faith. Because what it means then, if we don't accept this, then we're in control. But if we're going to accept this truth, then we have to acknowledge that our ways are not always best. And we're going to have to acknowledge that God's ways are always best. And that God cares about every detail and that gets really sticky sometimes in our life when we find ourselves in what we would call bad situations. Whether they be our, our doings or someone else's doings. Or, or just unfortunate. And somebody gets a terminal illness. And we sit here and we say, how can God be involved in all things and still be good when bad things are happening to me? And we ask questions like that. That's when faith gets real. That's when this verse is difficult. Not when we're sitting in Sunday school and we're perfectly content and the air conditioning is working and all things like that. That's when faith gets real. 
And just to answer the question, because I don't think it's a very difficult question, how can God be God and still allow bad things to happen? The easy, very easy answer to that question is that they're not happening because of God. They're happening because of us. They're happening because of sinners. And God is so good that he took this deformed, deteriorating world and he sent his only begotten son into the world that he might redeem all mankind. God has provided the solution. That's because God is good. And we get, we get so... Uh, we, we get look, looking at this world like a periscope, and all we see is the, the very small detail right in front of our eyes. Nothing more. And in those moments, we fail to remember who God is and how great God is. And we fail to respond in faith. God is imminent, closely involved in every particle of creation. Colossians 1.17 said, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And so he is constant. And yet, as incredibly comforting as that fact is, it is difficult for us at times. And so I ask you today, how can you take refuge in the truth that God is transcendent and imminent? What should that do to your heart in moments of despair or moments of, of, of question, or, or moments of discomfort in your life, how should that impact how we behave and how we think? How should that affect our worship? When we come and we sit in, in a service and we give God praise, or not even sitting, you're at home in your own rocking chair. That sounds really old. You're in your lazy boy, or wherever, and you're reading your Bible. How should that affect your worship? That God is always the same. Well, the second comfort in the fact that God is immutable is that God cares about the requests of his creation. We're told to bring our request or make our request known to God and that we receive our requests when we ask them in his will. And that's a great truth, but it's hard to do. How do you ask for God in his will? Well, you have to know what God desires. And you have to know what God thinks. You have to know what is true and what is not true. And you have to move your emotions or remove your emotions from the situation, asking God to give you the desires, but asking God to change your desires so they match God. And God will always accomplish his will. And so we should make our requests known to God. And we should ask, I think, this necessitates us asking God to change our hearts. Now again, that's really hard to do. Because in a moment of deep request, we want what we want. And to pray to God to change our hearts at times can be a dangerous thing. Can it not? When we ask God to fix our thinking and to change our desires so they match his desires, we usually don't want our desires changed. That's the problem. And so to ask God to change our desires sometimes is dangerous. It's kind of like asking God to teach us patience. Be careful. You might not want that. 
And yet in the end, we can say it is good because God is always good. His his ways, his will is always best. He always answers perfectly with full, unchanging knowledge. And so we should make our requests known to him. That should be a comfort to us. Third comfort is that God desires to give mercy to his creation. This is a great promise. David understood this as he called out to God in a moment of sinful repentance. David commits sin with Bathsheba. He commits murder. He commits uh, just a plethora of sin. And then he tries to hide it for months upon months. And finally, he's confronted with his sin. And after a time of brokenness, he says this in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And so David knew it wasn't ritual that God wanted. It wasn't sacrifice that he wanted. He wanted David's heart. Jeremiah 33, 3. We love this verse. It's, no, it's a wonderful verse. We're going to turn here in a little while. It's a great promise. It's a verse of promise. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Who in here does not want to know and understand great and mighty things from God? We all want it. In fact, secretly, maybe not even secretly, sometimes we desire to to, to see God like the Old Testament people got to see him. We do. That's not a bad thing to desire to see the holiness of God or the, to see the righteousness of God or the glory of God on display. But God wants to show us more than just that. We'll come back to that. But God desires to give mercy. Now, how do I know this? Well, the entire The entirety of Scripture was written with this in mind. All the way back to the promise in the garden to Adam and Eve that God would send a Redeemer to the completion of the Redeemer when Jesus Christ came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead to provide redemption for mankind all the way through the New Testament until today when God is revealing that grace to mankind. The entirety of the Bible is written with one enormous promise in mind that God would redeem his creation. Yes, God desires to give mercy. The fourth comfort that God's immutability brings is that God must act upon his character. He must be just and he must be righteous. A.W. Pink says this, God will not deny himself to gratify the lusts of the wicked. And there's a lot of so-called Christians that need to understand that truth today, that God will not deny himself to gratify the lusts of the wicked. There's a whole generations of Christians who are claiming that God is love and God is is forgiving and therefore God we can do whatever we want and God will still provide redemption and although in a sense that truth is real because we've all done what we wanted and we've all been sinful and depraved and God has provided redemption it does not mean that we are without excuse or without answer And so I think I can say generally 
that no true follower of God will live however they want and just leave God to provide redemption regardless of their heart and their actions. True relationship with God will bring about repentance and change. Ezekiel 8.18 says, Therefore I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. That's Ezekiel 8, verse 18. And it reminds me of a passage in Matthew where Jesus says, They will call to me, and they will say they've done mighty works in my name. But what will happen? He will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. That's what happens when we form our own God. We think we, have, we know Him. We think we are obedient to Him. We think we've done the things that He requires. And the whole time, our heart has been far from Him. And yet there's great comfort in knowing that God will always act upon His character. Because we can always know what to expect. Listen, I think one of the, the greatest pitfalls right now in America in, in the, the family unit is the fact that, that parents are highly inconsistent. Parenting is not complex. It's difficult, but it's not complex. All you have to do is be consistent. Consistently teach them the truth of God. It's really simple, right? Very simple. Really hard to do. How do my wife and I be consistent when we have two different brains? And trust me, we have two different brains. And we think different ways. And at times, she is very, very consistent in some ways, and in some ways, I'm very consistent, and they happen to not be in the same area. <laughs> and it gets really hard to be consistent with your children, especially when you have four of them who are very different from each other. Parenting is very difficult. And yet all the kids want, I think the greatest desire that kids want is consistency. Think about this. Children's lives are changing dramatically at all times up until they're about 26 when their brain finally forms. I'm, that's a statistic. That's a medical fact. Their brains do not fully form until 26. Not 18. Certainly not younger. And so, children desire consistency. They don't know what to expect. Everything's constantly changing in their life. You know, think about how you treat a three-year-old and how you treat a, a, an eight-year-old and how you treat a, a 12-year-old and how you treat an 18-year-old. It's very different. Their ability to think and to process is different. The, the responsibilities that you give them is very different. Their life is constantly changing and everyone is in charge except for them. And, and so they're listening to this adult about this thing, and this, about, and this adult does things this way, and this adult does things this way, and that adult does things that way, and they're all in charge, and they're expected to be obedient to all of them. And now we live in a society where everybody, every adult does just whatever that is good in their own eyes. And every adult thinks they're an expert because they, they're on social media or they uh, whatever. They watched a video. Or... This is why consistency is so important. Let me tell you the greatest way to be consistent as a parent. I'm get, I know I'm on a big rabbit trail right now. It's okay. The greatest way to be consistent is to go to the one that is constant 
and unchanging. And to follow the truth that he gives us that is constant and unchanging. It's really easy. I shouldn't say that. It's easier for my wife and I to be consistent when we're both looking at the same mark. And it goes that way in all of life. This is, this is an incredible blessing from God that he, te- he tells us what to expect. You want to frustrate a child? Never set consistent expectations for them. And then they can never meet them and they get absolutely frustrated in life. They never know what to do. They never know how to behave. They never know who to please. They never know what to do. That's how you frustrate a child. By the way, as an adult, is that not how you get frustrated as well? And yet if we're focused on the correct thing, the thing that never changes, then we always know what to expect. We always know what to do. And that's an incredible blessing that God always acts according to his character. And his character never changes. And his truth never changes. He is consistent at all times. The same yesterday, today, and forever. You always know what God wants. We can always know how to please the Lord. And that's worship. The last comfort that we'll end on is God's promises. They are always kept. God will accomplish everything that he has said, and he will accomplish it in the manner in which he has said it. What a great comfort that is. In a world that is unstable and constantly changing, God will always do what he said. Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That means that God will not undo what he has promised. Now listen, that's in Romans. This is, a, uh, this is all about salvation. All the promises, all the blessings of salvation are irrevocable. You can never undo what God has promised and what God has accomplished in you. So if he's brought about salvation in you, if you've fallen under the grace of Jesus Christ and you've been provided redemption, then you have all the fullness of all the promises of salvation and they can never change. What a great comfort that is. God is always faithful. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He keeps all of his promises. Psalm 77, 8. Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his, mer- has his promises failed forevermore? And those are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no. Now, I read earlier Jeremiah chapter 3. Would you turn there? I'm sorry, Jeremiah 33. I read verse 3. Would you turn there? I want you to see the immutability of God in the promises that he has made. We love this verse, Jeremiah 33, verse 3. I already read it once. It says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now think about that. If God is always the same, He is always consistent, He's involved intricately in His creation, yet He's far above creation, what could He be talking about when He makes this promise in verse 3? Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. 
Can I tell you, he's writing this to Israel. We know that to be true. Look down at verse 5. He gives a promise here in verse 5. They will come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury. All those wickedness, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. So God will come and he will fight for Israel. So in verse 3 he says, I promise to hear you Israel. In verse 5 he promises to fight for Israel. In verse 6 he promises to heal Israel. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. Now we can think of that in the context of physical safety, which is what Israel is probably thinking about at the moment, but that's not what the promise entails. This is a spiritual healing. And it's seen all the way down in verse 8. I will cleanse them from all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And then look down at verse 14. Now here's why I read this. God made these promises to Israel. These promises cannot change. They cannot be broken. God will accomplish it exactly how he says he will. But this is written to Israel before, at at the beginning of their captivity and during the captivity. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. God promises redemption. God promises restoration, physical and spiritual. But notice what verse 14 says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. God will accomplish exactly what he says, and he's going to do it in his time. And here's where we get off track with God's immutability, or one of the ways we get off track is we think God is bound to keep his promises the way I think he should keep his promises. Everyone who he's writing to in Jeremiah will not see these promises fulfilled in the flesh. They won't see the restoration of Israel. They're not not going to see the restoration, the spiritual restoration of Israel through Jesus Christ. It won't happen for hundreds of years. But when Jeremiah is saying it here in Jeremiah 33, it's as good as done. Because God promised it. And that's what matters. God will cleanse the people of their sins. Every promise that God has ever made will be accomplished. And whether they are they're fulfilled in our lifetime or after or before, we can take absolute heart to the certainty of it that they will be accomplished. Matthew 5, 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle tittle will by no means pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God are yes, in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. 
2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack. He does not let up. He is not slow to act. He didn't forget about some promises, and he kind of gets them done later. No, he accomplishes everything that he has promised in the time frame that he has determined. And not one small detail will be left out. God is not some fickle being that changes with culture or changes with society or changes with time. He is eternally the same. And we're even promised this, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's great comfort in the fact that God does not change. And God accomplishes everything that he has promised. Our world right now is under deep attack. The truth is under attack. Scripture is being fulfilled right now. Romans chapter 1 says that they will turn the truth of God into a lie. It's happening now in our society. It's been happening for thousands of years. It will happen continued on after you pass. Mankind will continue to change the truth into a lie. And yet it doesn't mean that the truth becomes a lie. Because the truth is always the same because God is always the same. Truth matters. And truth comes from an unchanging, transcendent one who can not only not be changed, but will keep every promise that he's ever made. And here's where it matters for us. We must conform our worship to him. Not the other way. We must make sure that we worship him in spirit, but today we're focusing on truth. His truth, not our truth. And so let me ask you, what about God's unchanging perfections? Encourage your heart. You should be encouraged by the fact that God never changes. How does that encourage you? What about God's transcendence? The fact that he's far above creation challenges you. You should be challenged by the fact that God is far above you. His ways are far above you. His knowledge is far above you. But you should also not just be challenged by that, encouraged by that. So how are you encouraged and challenged by that? And how can you better prepare your heart to come before an immutable God who is the Lord of all, who never changes? Worship is not about us. And, and I'll just state it because we know it's true. If you came here today for you, your worship is false. You either came here today to worship God or it's false. Because worship is all about God. Now, with that said, it doesn't mean you're not blessed. It doesn't mean you can't recognize the truth and it deeply affect you. But the motive of why we're here should all, always be to give God what he deserves for he does not change. Let's pray. We hope that today's message has challenged you spiritually and has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. For more information about Trinity Baptist Church, or if you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us on our website at tbcwestfield.com or on Facebook or Instagram at tbcwestfield. Thank you so much for listening today, 
Join us again next time for more Preaching at Trinity.